Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what, the, what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. It's always a delight to be with you. I did not know if I'd be trudging through three inches of snow. It's kind of hoping I would, honestly, but um, that's okay. It's coming, right? We can feel like we're going to get a snowfall eventually. Um, I actually, my daughter said last night that there was snow in the air, and so I literally just went outside and stood in the rain and then felt a couple of snowflakes and was like, yes, and then got rained on some more and then was like, okay, this is worthless. So, so excited for such small things. Uh, but it is a delight to worship with you uh, on this uh, first Sunday of the Epiphany. One of the uh, more complicated le legacies in the best-selling series, Harry Potter, is that of Draco Malfoy. Now, if you're not familiar with Draco, he is a student at the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry in the same year as Harry. And at the beginning of the first book, Draco seems to be the natural antagonist to Harry. At least that's what you think when the series begins, that this saga, this seven-book saga, is going to be all about Harry versus Draco. As it turns out, Draco and his family do not occupy the central place that the reader might have originally envisioned. And when the seventh book ends, one would be excused for scratching their head when thinking about Draco's place in the story. Through this series, make no mistake, he has been Harry's antagonist. He's been a bad guy, just not the bad guy. So his legacy is a bit complicated. What complicates it further is that Draco almost doesn't survive the seventh book. Sorry if this is a spoiler, but these books have been around for a day or two. 
In the seventh book, Draco and his buddies, Crab and Goyle, find Harry and his friends, Ron and Hermione, fulfilling one of Dumbledore's last wishes in the Room of Requirement, when Draco and his cronies try to stop them. Crab, not being a very skilled magician, shoots a magical fire into the room that he is quickly unable to control. This fire seems intent on killing them all, leaving Draco and Goyle perched on a mountain of random discarded items, and Harry, Ron, and Hermione scrambling onto broomsticks looking for the exit. As they're flying to the door for their lives, Harry hears a faint scream. It's Draco. Now, Ron knows Harry quite well, and he sees Harry hear Draco. And Ron screams to Harry, it's too dangerous. Don't even think about it. But Harry whirls midair looking for his old nemesis. Ron reluctantly follows, because that's what Ron normally does, while Harry scans the flames for signs of human life. It's right then that Ron screams what everyone is thinking at this moment. Ron says, if we die for him, I'll kill you, Harry. Now, Harry did indeed save Draco's life and ensured that Draco would live on after the Battle of Hogwarts. Now, why do I bring this up? Because I like Harry Potter. But there is another reason. Ron's instinct in that moment is so very human. The reason that the reader or the moviegoer have the same reaction, right? Harry, what are you doing? You're not going to save Draco, are you? After all he did to you, after all his father did to you? Even though he wasn't the bad guy, he still was a bad guy. After all that, you're going to save him? I say that response is a very human one. In all seven books, Draco is perhaps the most unlikely person that Harry goes back to rescue. So it is with our gospel reading for today. Now, as has already been noted, yesterday was the Feast of the Epiphany. This is the feast that celebrates the manifestation of Jesus' glory to the Gentiles, uh, represented by the Magi, the wise men, and the manifestation of his divinity, expressed at his baptism and first miracle. And perhaps surprisingly, this story from Harry Potter is a good illustration of the overarching message of our gospel reading in Matthew chapter 2. As I reflected on the story of the Magi seeking the one born king of the Jews, one thing that stood out to me was the grace of God reaching the most unlikely people. Thus the title of this sermon. You have in this story four different responses to the birth of Jesus, exemplified by four different people or groups of people. You start, of course, with the Magi, the wise men. But you've also got Herod's response to the birth of Jesus and all of Jerusalem and the priests and scribes. There are four different responses, mostly. I'll get to that in a moment. Four different responses to Jesus' birth. And all of them are very human responses, very understandable. But but they're all noteworthy because of what it says about the grace of God to people like us. The first response comes from the people we might consider the main characters of the story, the wise men or the magi. Traditionally, these are kings. 
Traditionally, it's three kings. They even have names. Actually, my wife and I just went to see the Rockettes this week, and they told this whole story, like naming all the kings and traditionally where they're from. Whether or not they were kings, whether or not they were three, that's traditional, uh, but ultimately uh, it's rather speculative. But they were magi. Now, that word magi comes from the same word where we get our word magician. So maybe there's more to this Harry Potter illustration than meets the eye. If you're wondering, like, why would you talk about magic in a sermon or magicians in Harry Potter? I would just say, well, the text already has magicians in it. So there you go, right? The Magi were wise men. They were priests from Persia or perhaps Babylon. They were astrologers. They were practiced in reading the skies. They were experts in interpreting dreams. And they practiced other secretive arts. Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures, if you're familiar with the Old Testament in particular, there's one magus, that's a singular form of magi, plural, there's one magus you're probably familiar with from the time that Babylon and Persia dominated Jewish life. You might recall that Babylon's king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, captured the southern kingdom of Judah, besieged and uh, and took the city of Jerusalem and deported most of its people to Babylon, starting this 70-year period of exile. And then the Persians followed the Babylonians, defeated the Babylonians, and under King Cyrus sent the people back. Now there's one Old Testament character whose life actually stretches over that whole time period. A book is named after him in the Old Testament. His name, of course, is Daniel. Daniel was a very young man when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and deported him. And in Daniel chapter 1, as you can see uh, in the scriptures on the screen, he's actually trained to be a sort of proto-magus. These arts were developed during uh, Babylon's rule and was perfected, or were perfected, so to speak, in the Persian era. So when you're looking at who are these magi in uh, Matthew chapter 2, Daniel shed some light on this for us. Right off the bat, they're not Jewish. They're not people of the Mosaic Covenant. They're Gentiles. And not only were the Magi Gentiles, they were Gentile practitioners of divination. And yet, here they are, these men who were trained as Daniel was trained, the only difference being, of course, that Daniel stayed faithful to the one true God, but these magi are not connected to the one true God. They have no connection to Jerusalem. Yet somehow, through their study of their stars, they were led to believe, correctly, mind you, that a great leader had been born in Judea. And since the leader was going to be born in Judea, naturally they went to Jerusalem, the capital city, where King Herod was ruling. And one other thing I want you to notice about these magi is the very strange question that they ask. The natural question would have been for them to say, where is the newborn prince? Instead, they ask, where is the newborn king? Their assumption is that this infant already rules. So this most unlikely group of people already acknowledge a new king, so they're looking for him that they might worship him. 
That's the first response in this story. The second response we see is the response of King Herod, which is that he is troubled. He is troubled by this news, troubled by the appearance of someone who would threaten his rule. I want to jump ahead just a little bit and point out the third response in this passage as well. I have more to say about Herod, but I want you to see that the third response is the same. All Jerusalem had the same response. They too were troubled. Now, where Herod and Jerusalem have the same response, there's a big difference between them. And the difference is the reason for their troubled response. This particular Herod, if you've read through the New Testament, you know that you come across Herods a lot. This is sort of the granddaddy Herod. He is rightly called Herod the Great. Not because he was good. He was evil by any standards. He was a despot and a tyrant. And because of that, he got a lot of things done. So they called him the Great. He was the progenitor of this family of Herods that would pop up throughout the New Testament. His, he was troubled because there was a new king on the scene, apparently. And that threatened this evil man's rule. That's the reason for his troubled response. The third response from the whole city of Jerusalem, from the people, from the commoners, their response was also that they were troubled, but they were troubled for a different reason. Herod is troubled because there's a threat to his power, a threat to his rule, that there's another king. And of course, the next story that Matthew's going to tell is the slaughter of the innocents. That story shows just how his troubled spirit would result in murderous violence against the most helpless victims imaginable. It shows why he's troubled. He believes his power is threatened and he'll stop at nothing to maintain his power. The people's response, on the other hand, comes from a different place. The reason they are troubled is not that their power is threatened. They have no power. The reason they are troubled is that Herod is threatened. The powerful person is threatened, and therefore they feel troubled. What will this madman do? They had every right to be troubled, as this, the next story would demonstrate. The murder of every child under the age of two in Bethlehem. The people of Jerusalem had good reason to be troubled, though for a very different reason. And here's what's fascinating to me. These people are so oppressed that this news of a newborn king does not spark even a flicker of hope. Maybe a new king had been born, but even if so, it's just a baby. What's he going to do against Herod the Great? This was not a warrior entering the city to liberate them from evil King Herod. This was an infant. What could an infant do? I saw the one-month-old baby. I didn't catch his name. I'm sorry. Out in the lobby. Wesley. I mean, the average commoner would say, what could Wesley, as cute and cuddly and adorable as he is, what could he do against King Herod? This evil tyrant. 
So there's not even the tiniest hope that this child can relieve them from their oppression. Instead, they are troubled because Herod the tyrant is troubled. That's three responses. There's one more. The fourth response comes from the chief priests and scribes of the people. These are the religious leaders. Let me restate that just a little bit differently. This is the first time they're introduced to us in the Gospels. And it's easy, it's easy for me to read what I'm going to learn about them later back into this story. So let me, let me describe them a different way. They, they are the religious leaders. That is true. They are biblical scholars. Okay? That's why Herod goes to them saying, what is this about a prophecy that maybe a potential, that, that maybe a potential rival to my throne would arise? Do you have any idea where a royal son to King David might be born? He's actually asking on behalf of the, on behalf of the Magi, so to speak. The Magi have said, we've come, where is he? Herod learns about this and says, I don't know, but if there is a new king, I know who to ask. So he goes to the biblical scholars, and the biblical scholars rightly say, hey, there is a prophecy in Micah chapter 5 that says that this baby is going to be born in Bethlehem, this little village over there, because the leader would come from there. And so Herod hatches this plan. He says, hey, I'll bring the Magi in. Now, as far as we know, the meeting here in verse 7 is the first time that Herod and the Magi actually meet one another. The Magi show up in Jerusalem asking all over, where is this king? Herod finds out about the Magi, asks the scholars. The scholars give him the right answer. And then he pulls the Magi in to say, I've got the answer to your question. Let's keep this on the DL, okay? I'm not going to go with you right now. Why don't you go over there? Find out what you can. And report back to me. Then, then I'll go worship him too. Herod had no reason to think that the Magi wouldn't come back. This is a language that Herod understands. It's the language of politics. I scratch your back. I found this information out for you. Now, when you get some information, come back and share that with me, okay? And then we'll be square. Now, what is the fourth response of these biblical scholars who knew right away the answer to Herod's question? This is so interesting. Their response is passivity. The great commentator Leon Morris puts it this way. He says, although they could say immediately where the Messiah would be born, they apparently did nothing about the report that the Magi brought. They fail by being passive. Rather than go and see for themselves whether this ancient prophecy has been fulfilled, they get back to whatever it was they were doing before, Herod asked. Now, it's impossible to know why. We know why the Magi sought the new king. We know why Herod was troubled. We know why the people were troubled. We don't know why the religious leaders, these biblical scholars, were passive. We just know that they did nothing. And we know that the rest of Matthew's account of the chief priests and scribes doesn't really reflect that well on them. Perhaps one can reasonably hypothesize that they were passive, for the same reason that Herod was troubled, they'd carved out a good life, and if this prophecy was about to be fulfilled, it would upset their lives. That's just speculation, though. At, at any rate, here's why I'm walking through these responses. Of these four groups you have, 
the Magi, Herod, Jerusalem, and the priests and scribes, which would you think is most likely to celebrate the birth of the Messiah? I would say certainly the religious leaders, the biblical scholars, the ones who know the answer to the question. Certainly them. And perhaps a close second would be the common people. Again, the news did not spark a flicker of hope in them, but consider nine months earlier when the angel visited Mary, her response in the Magnificat, right? She hears that she's going to be the mother of Christ the Lord, and she sings of the turning over of oppression. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has turned away empty. She sings of the hopefulness in this moment, even though she's just a commoner under oppression. So you'd think that the ones who would seek this Messiah would be those who know the Bible and at least some of the oppressed people. And yet for different reasons, neither of those groups responded that way. In other words, the people who should have known better missed the coming of the Messiah. They missed the presence of the Christ. And can I say, friends, that's us. We're the ones who should know better. People sitting here in a church on a Sunday morning in the village on a cold, rainy day probably took a lot of effort for us to get here. We're the ones who should know better. And we are not immune. We're not immune from missing the presence of the Messiah. It reminds me of Jesus' sobering words later in the gospel, in this gospel, when at the judgment seat, he looks at some people and says, enter the joy of the Lord, because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they said, when did we ever do that? He said, when you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. And he turned to others and said, depart from me, because when I was hungry, you did not feed me. When I was naked, you did not clothe me. When I was in prison, you did not visit me. And they said, when did, we, when did that ever happen? And Jesus said, when you did not do this to the least of these, you did not do it to me. It's missing the presence of the Messiah. I was remarkable that we sang this song, He is Among Us. We did not collaborate about this at all. I did not add this slide after we sang. You'll find me with the broken and the weak. You'll hear my voice cry out with those who weep. You'll find me with the ones without a voice, the forgotten and ignored. It's we who should know better, who often miss the presence of Christ. The fact that we believe the scriptures, the fact that we rely on the scriptures, the fact that we trust the scriptures, even the fact that we seek to live by the scriptures does not inoculate us from being troubled because our power is threatened or troubled because we are oppressed. It does not inoculate us from being people who can't see past our oppression and are worried about what a truly tyrannous person would do to us. 
does not inoculate us from being passive because things are comfortable for us right now. Friends, it's a human condition and we are not immune. Now let me be clear. The point of this passage is not to say, seek Jesus like the Magi. They're your hero. Be more like them. That's not the point of this passage because at the end of the day, this story isn't about them. They are not the main characters of the story. So the point of this sermon, don't walk away from here saying, Hoskinson said, okay, seek him more in 2024, right? That is not the point of this sermon. The point of this passage is that grace begins with God coming to us, not with us coming to God or seeking for him. We who should know better get this wrong all the time. We think somehow our Bible study or our prayer or our renewed disciplines for a new year will somehow earn God's favor for us. God's going to bless us this year because we've been so disciplined. How, how could he not otherwise? And yet we miss the presence of Christ all around us, sometimes even because of our disciplines. You think about why the Levite and the priest walk past the, good, the, the, the bloodied man on the side of the road. They had religious stuff to do. People were counting on them. And so they let this half-dead man stay there. Friends, the good news of this passage is that grace comes to us. We don't have to go find it. Grace begins with God coming to us. It, it, it doesn't begin with us coming to God and then God showing us a little favor. No, it starts with him coming to us, and it's clear in the story, right? I mean, I started with the Magi, but the Magi didn't get this whole thing going. The story got going because of a star. Who put that there? It wasn't the Magi. The star created the story. God announced through the star, and don't ask me how, I don't know, okay? But God announced through the star, the Messiah is here. The Magi who are looking for the Messiah did not kickstart God's grace to them. The Magi were looking for the Messiah as a response to God showing grace to a group of unlikely people. The seeking does not prompt the grace. The seeking is a response to grace. But really, the story doesn't even begin with the star, right? It begins with a baby. The birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnation, God in human form, God with a belly button. That's incredible. That's insane. This is the epiphany, God revealing his glory in the face, literally in the face of Jesus Christ. When astrologers were seeking wisdom through pagan practices, when tyrants were ruthlessly murdering innocent people, when commoners felt threatened by any change in the tyrant's emotional state, when biblical scholars were so deep in their study that they couldn't get up and go look for the Messiah, God came to us in Jesus. And this Jesus lived the life we fail to live. He lived as the one who sought after God all the days of his life. His whole life, he gave himself away freely. He gave his power away freely. He even gave his huge crowds away. He divested himself even of having multitudes with him all the time, all the way until he died. 
and on that cross, dying the death that we should have died for our love of power and our love of control and our love of pleasure, this Messiah not only came to us, he died for us. That's what the myrrh was all about, right? The gold signified he's royal. The frankincense that he would be a priest representing us to God. And the myrrh that he would die. Whether or not the Magi knew it then, this new king would die, must die, for the ones he would redeem. Ronald Weasley may have told Harry Potter, if we die for him, I'll kill you. But in the gospel, Jesus says to us, if I die for you, you'll live. And he did. And then, friends, on the third day, he rose from the dead. And his resurrection means the power of those loves has been broken in our lives. And through his ascension, he has sent his spirit to us. God keeps coming to us. He sent his spirit to us to redeem us from the prison that we've been enslaved in and to free us to be who he made us to be. See, friends, Jesus keeps coming to us. Grace always takes the first step. God comes to us. We are the most unlikely. Not just pagan astrologers in Persia. What we do is merely a response to his gracious initiative. Friends, grace begins with God coming to us, not the other way around. And God's grace keeps coming because God has sent his spirit to us. Grace comes to us when we're seeking, when we're disciplined, when we're longing for a fresh taste of his presence, and grace comes to us when we're not seeking, when we're straying, when we're happy doing our own thing. Grace comes to us when we're actively pursuing him, and grace comes to us when we're passive and don't feel like we can go any farther. The hope of this passage is not that, hey, you know, if you're just a little bit more like the Magi, God might come to you. Hope of this passage is that no matter where you are, God has come to you. He has come to you in Jesus. He has revealed his glory in the face of Jesus Christ, and he keeps coming to you in the Holy Spirit. So no matter where you are right now, whether you're the know-it-all biblical scholar who can, who can answer every question but can't be bothered to take a trip to Jerusalem to go or to Bethlehem to see the, if this news is true, or whether you're the oppressed person who has lost hope, friends, let this passage be like the star the Magi saw. Let these words be a star in the sky pointing you to grace coming to you, the most unlikely candidate to receive it. With faith or with fear and trepidation, respond to that grace coming to you. Take of this bread. Take of this wine. Take a step towards Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, our only hope in life and in death is that you have taken the first step to come to us. And not just a step, you've come all the way. Lord Jesus, you lived as we live, and yet unlike how we've ever lived. And you gave yourself for us. And so we give you our thanks. 
and ask that by your Holy Spirit, in response to that grace, we would stand fast in the freedom for which you have set us free, to, the pe to be the people you made us to be, those who love you with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and those who love our neighbors as ourselves. For we ask in your powerful name. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.